Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So there is this hope in investment circles and amongst politicians and economists that we can still enjoy economic growth, even if we go for net zero by 2050, that we somehow can keep the economy growing while consuming less energy. But can we? Or at least less fossil fuel energy? Uh, Greta Thunberg obviously thinks we can't. So what if the only answer to net zero was a zero growth economy? What would that look like? And is there a cat in hell's chance of us ever getting there? For anyone in power, isn't that just political suicide? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So how will the global economy cope if it has to go without growth? Well, it is, of course, a very low growth economy right now. And for most of us, you know, we're sort of getting by. There's not a lot of spare cash, but it doesn't seem that bad. The issue, of course, is right now high interest rates and high mortgage debt and rising prices. But do any of those go hand in hand? With low growth? Well, not in Japan's case. I mean, their GDP growth slowed from 4.9% in 1990 to 0.3% in 2019. And they've paid for it with a fall in household income. So that's gone from 6.5 million yen in 1995 to 5.6 million yen in 2021. So that's quite a step down. And many countries are now facing falling living standards. In Australia, for example, this last week, GDP for the last quarter uh, fell. Well, it rose but only because of immigration, something you know that Japan doesn't want to embrace. If you look at Australia's GDP per capita, that is what's falling. And in the UK, well, we've had years of lower wages here and falls in real income, particularly now with such sky-high inflation. So, Steve, zero growth. I mean, it might be necessary if we're going to stop climate change, and it might actually be the new normal way anyway. Uh, but putting the need aside for the moment... What uh, normally goes with low or zero growth? Does it automatically follow that living standards will have to fall? And aren't we sort of going down this path anyway? We certainly have gone down the path since the days of uh, so-called Keynesian economic management of the economy. And this is something which, uh, when, when you look at it, it, it it's it's amazing uh, to see the contrast because the, the, the takeover of economic policy by neoclassicals from you know, rabid neoclassicals, people who thought Keynes was uh, a joke and should be abolished, people like Ben Bernanke and uh, Alan Blinder and so on, who used to ridicule anybody who uh, 
referred to Keynes in the 1970s and 1980s, ever since they've started dominating economic policy, and I date that from 90, the, the uh, beginning of 1975, uniformly across every country for which I can find data in the OECD, the economic growth rate has been lower rather than higher. So these guys sold themselves on the basis that they were going to do better than the Keynesians. We were being held back by Keynesian policy and growth would be much greater under them. And without fail in every country, in the OECD database, the great rate of economic growth has been substantially lower right. uh, under the neoclassicals than it was beforehand. Except for some people. So, I mean, that is the uh, diversity that's, that's of income. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point, yeah. Yeah. So I mean that's so if you if you if we can top off how much is being made by the the high income earners, they're actually doing a service to the planet then, aren't they? If they if they're slowing consumption. Uh, oh yeah. I mean they yeah, they're consuming well, rather than consuming train rides and uh and public transport, we're consuming luxury yachts and uh and, and other fripperies of the of the ultra wealthy. This is it, it, this is one of the great uh, travesties. Yeah, sure, we're growing more slowly, which is the opposite of what they thought they'd achieve. Uh, but the result has been the growth has been, in terms of income and wealth, has been focused in the upper echelons. Not even the top 5% is a, a decent target. You've really got to say the top 1% and even 0.1%. And uh, they've done extremely well out of this uh, policy change. But for the vast majority of people, uh, living standards have grown more slowly, far more slowly than they did in the 1950s and 60s. And the quality of life uh, in terms of when you know, what you get uh, with what you can get for your money, what you have left over after you've bought somewhere to live or paid for the rent for somewhere to live, people are substantially, potentially substantially, not, not so much worse off because the technology has improved. No argument about that. Uh, but the comfort with which people live and the sense of security they have, that's gone. So they've had you know, stultifying incomes for the lower 70% of the income uh, class pretty much across the whole of the OECD and a dramatic increase in the insecurity of employment um, and therefore living standards mm. uh, for the vast majority of the population. So if the you know mega rich are seeing the high growth and everyone else is, is struggling uh, to make ends meet, if those if the mega rich is consuming more energy and doing that they're the ones doing the destruction to the planet, then surely at the uh, you know even without looking at them as a as a subsection, the the key indicator that we all want to look at is how much energy is consumed relative to GDP. Isn't that the number that every government, every central bank, every policy decision should be based on so that we can see what we can say? Because then you can, you know, either debunk or prove the uh, the decoupling argument. If there's a way that you can grow without increasing your energy consumption, all great. But as we know, we'll probably find that, in fact, as as, as GDP grows, then uh, then energy consumption grows as well. That becomes a really important number, doesn't it? And you, you, I never hear it being touted as something that we should be tracking. Yeah, and it is a, a vitally important number. And, uh, I mean, when I look at the correlation between not just energy and GDP, but change in energy and change in GDP, I get one of these sets of numbers that I swear, often say to my students when I was talking about the financial crisis back in 2008, that I wouldn't dare 
make up the numbers that I can read off the statistical agencies because it makes the case that I'm trying to make, which is a contrarian case, of course, so strongly that, you know, it looks like I cooked the numbers. So if you take a look at the at the aggregate level, so you're not, not looking at, say, the UK's energy and GDP relationship or America or China, et cetera, et cetera, but the entire global economy, uh, then the correlation between energy and GDP is 0.997. And that, of course, mm. Because they're both growing, that gives you a, a spurious correlation. But the correlation of the change in energy and the change in GDP is 0.86, and they're pretty much the same magnitude. So, if GDP in the global level rises by four percent, energy consumption rises by 3.8 percent or thereabouts, and uh, it is virtually a one-for-one -one mapping between the two. So, so if we're going to reduce uh, GDP, we have to reduce energy consumption as well. And of course, that's where climate change is coming from. So that, uh, you know, and you've said it before, that this idea of decoupling is fanciful. And, you know, there's the there's the correlation to, to show that's the case. But I wonder if it, it, I mean, could it change? I mean, we can, obviously, you know, there's technological advances, for example. Uh, and could that mean we get some sort of semi-decoupling? So that, so that ratio, that relationship perhaps eases a little bit. Can we, can we expand a little bit without using more energy uh, or by using renewable energy without increasing our carbon emissions? I mean, it's hence, you know, that, that important number, the relationship between GDP and, uh, and, and energy consumption or carbon consumption. Um, I mean, because it would be useful to know whether we are talking about the need to for zero GDP growth to get to net zero. I'm presuming you think that is the, that is the story. That's what we have to attain. Well, yes, we when, when, and as soon as possible, because the catastrophes we're seeing in the climate right now, uh, you know, floods in Greece, we're in one, I think in 15 hours, one part of, of Greece got one and a half times its annual rainfall in 15 hours. Mm. And that is a, 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 an idea of the, the scale of climatic uh, chaos that is not just coming our way, but it's already arrived. Yeah. And uh, that keeps up. That's going to solve the uh, argument for us. Yeah, exactly. And we can, we can, we're all seeing that happening everywhere. But the idea that we are suddenly going to cut uh, GDP to zero, even though we're sort of seeing it now anyway in, in, in lots of places. Uh, but, I mean, that's – I mean, is, is it achievable to do that? And how do we achieve it? Is it done through public policy? No, no, no. It's not achievable. I think this is, this is, this is the – Unfortunately, we need some some realism here because people talking about decoupling will point to examples like the UK, where GDP has gone up and energy consumption has gone down per capita in both cases. But um, that that is because GDP uh, they've outsourced the manufacturing to China and India, yeah, yeah. and at the global level, there has been no decoupling worth speaking of. Uh, there's been very little growth indeed, indeed in the proportion of energy being generated by renewables so there were about 12% of gdp 12% of energy uh in 2014 there are maybe about 15% now um which means the vast majority you know over 85% of our energy is still coming from fossil fuel sources so all this talk about decoupling and being able to grow uh, gdp without growing energy consumption is, is relying upon a miracle and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I ceased being religious about 50 years ago. And uh, I'm, I'm not seeing any miracles around now. And I'm not seeing any evidence amongst policymakers that they're aware they're relying upon miracles to be able to continue giving the, uh, the optimistic uh, future scenarios they continue painting. So you're not a big follower of uh, we'll find a way anomics. 
uh, which, <laughs> which seems to be the way, doesn't it? Look, there's a great book that you might enjoy that I've just uh, finished reading by a guy called Haju Chang, which is called 23 Things They Didn't Tell You About Capitalism. You could have written this book, actually, Steve. Uh, he, oh, yeah. We've actually never met, strangely enough, but we're certainly uh, we're very comparable in terms of our approach to economics and the sort of things we focus upon. And he's a so very, just one of those ones. Yeah, he's yeah. a very easy read as well. And he's got a good sense of humor. So, uh, you right. know, so he's not exactly like you. Uh, I'm only joking. Oh, damn. Look, uh, he, <laughs> he, uh, he says one of the most earth shattering innovations, uh, you know, in our lifetimes or and before our lifetimes has been in the kitchen, the washing machine, the dishwasher, because that's actually had one of the most profound effects because it means we don't need maids and domestic staff anymore because we can do all this stuff ourselves. So that has helped drive productivity higher. But of course, that's a productivity gain that has come at the expense of energy consumption. And, uh, you know, I don't think we've ever had a big shift in lifestyle uh, or productivity without using more power. And yet we seem to believe uh, the decouplers that, yeah, now we can do it. But I guess some of that innovation is going to come from the generation of, uh, of power not using fossil fuels, isn't it? You know, we're going to, you know, wind farms don't use power, they generate power. So we're going to get GDP growth from that, at least in the short term. To some degree, but but, but, but again, I mean, there's a huge argument amongst the, the largely engineers that support the work that I'm doing in my Patreon and Substack pages. And there are some who are just uh, outright critics of solar energy and wind, saying that the, the mineral needs uh, for them uh, are enormous, like Simon Marchow's case is, is that, that we don't have the minerals necessary to shift others are making the opposing case and saying yes we can we can do it it can be done with uh, a shift to from uh, fossil fuel based to renewable energies still others saying it has to be nuclear but without fail they're saying we need more energy and that is the uh, the problem that um what really has been what really been the source of the improvement in in physical living standards over the last one and a half centuries has been the replacement of human and also animal uh, power to some degree by fossil fuel power. And I think it was Buckminster Fuller who first coined the point that we, what we are doing is we're relying upon energy slaves. And rather than having uh, physical humans uh, chained up to a, a vehicle to drag the king uh, forward or carry them, as you see in some, some uh, cases in, uh, in, in pre-18th century civilization, um, we have fossil fuel where effectively you've got 500 people pushing your car for you when you drive to work each day. And therefore we're living, we're all living like Kings and we're not aware of it because as Nate Hagen says, we're energy blind. We're so much surrounded by and dominated by uh, the use of the conversion of energy into useful work that then makes our lives physically more comfortable but we don't even see that's happening so and our preoccupation with growth as a result of all of that so uh you know to meet that net zero target uh, for 2050 uh, in many countries i think that's going to crucify their economies isn't it so let's uh, so australia for example deloitte just did a bit, bit of research and they reckon australia even if, re if it reaches those net zero targets uh they're going to lose 270 billion 
in exports by 2050 because, of course, they're exporting so many fossil fuels. They're just not going to be needed. That is about uh, half of all their exports or a good 10 to 15 percent of the uh, of the GDP for Australia as the world decarbonizes. So obviously they've then got to say, well, we don't want to lose that because that is a big step going backwards. Therefore, we've got to look at the growth opportunities. We've got to look at what else we do. And of course, that is going to be all driven by energy consumption, whether it's renewable or, or, or wherever, wherever it comes from. Uh, we want to sustain our lifestyle, don't we? And, and, and you know, you can't fight against that. One of my favourite lines uh, from a song is by Leonard Cohen. I forgot which actual number it is, but he, he says, we are locked into our sufferings and our pleasures of the seal. And I think that's really summarises where we are right now because our suffering of what we're doing to the climate, what we're seeing with the you know incredible climate chaos around the planet right now, and the fear that that could actually destroy our productive uh, capacities at some point as well if we had a... Uh, you know, a, a one-day heat wave of over 50 degrees sustained for about you know, 8 to 12 hours could be enough to destroy the wheat crop, for example. Um, but we're locked into us that's potential suffering because of the pleasure of the energy consumption we're all enjoying, where, you know, and the average, I think in, in some of Vaclav Smell's calculations, the average American uh, is consuming something like 15,000 watts of power per per day, uh, whereas the the energy output they can actually manage for themselves in labour is about a hundred watts, so you're getting 150 times uh, back what you're what you're putting in, and that all comes back to our use of fossil fuels and to some extent, but by nowhere near enough uh, renewable energy and nuclear. Well, of course, that famous line from Greta Thunberg, she was talking at the UN Climate Change Summit in 2019 when she came out with that very famous, how dare you line, when she said, you know, we are at the beginning. I can't believe that was 2019. That was, you know, four years ago. But we are at the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? But of course, we do need to talk about it because how the economy is going to cope uh, is fundamental to whatever change we are going to undertake. So uh, we'll look at more of this as we come back. I mean, how do we tackle it? How how can we have a zero GDP global growth economy? Is it uh, and how do we drive that? Who and who's responsible for it? Is it a case of world government, which uh, obviously everyone is very fearful of? Uh, but someone's got to be uh, pulling the strings and driving the direction, haven't they? Uh, we'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Back in just a second. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, how do you get zero GDP growth when GDP is fundamentally driven by demand? So, you know, uh, we're always going to want stuff unless we're told that we can't have it. That we're always going to see GDP going up, aren't we? Well, we're going to be trying to achieve that, but we're ignoring the damage we're doing to GDP and our capital stock at the same time with you know, with events like, you know, there goes your car uh, in a river uh, in in Greece in, into the surf. Sure. Um, so you've got a negative there, which which we don't record. Right. No, uh, I'm, but, I'm, and that is, I'm, even though we, even if we are aware of those things, we are, you know, fear and greed. You know, the two things that that, that drive the economy. Uh, we are either fearful that we're not going to have enough money to see ourselves through our, you know, the lifestyle we want, or or greed that we've got an opportunity to make more. When we go shopping, uh, you know, we're, we're not thinking about those things, are we? We're just thinking about what we're going to have for dinner tonight and uh, when we're going to go on our next holiday. We, we, you know, we obviously, uh, this is where perhaps neoclassical economics is right, that we think think about ourselves more than we think about society. Well, you have an incredibly short-term perspective and economic theory amp- uh, amplifies that by ignoring the long-term consequences of what we're doing. And, uh, and, and that, you know, is the limits to growth said 50 years ago. Uh, this, this is unsustainable, and at some point you'll be an overshoot. And frankly, um, we are an overshoot now. We're using something like about one and a half to two times what the planet can actually restore on an annual basis, and we're dumping waste into the environment as well on a grand scale, waste which will be with us for tens of thousands of years. I'm thinking particularly of plastics here, non-biodegradable plastics, which were a major part of the, the comfort zone of the last 50 or so years. There's, uh, you know, forms of, of other forms of chemical uh, waste which are damaging the reproductive capacity of our own species, let alone what we're doing to others. So, yeah, we this this is serious, and 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 the trouble is by focusing on growth, we've ignored re- ignored distribution. Uh, in the period when neoclassicals took over and, and said we can show you how to grow more rapidly and abjectly failed. Just to give you an idea, by the way, I'm looking at the American data right now, if you look at the rate of economic growth from 1945 until 1970, the end of 1974, the annual rate of economic growth in America was 3.26% per annum from 1975 until 2000, the end of 2019, of course, preceding the impact of COVID, the growth rate is 1.8%, so virtually half the rate of economic growth. But in that time, what's happened is an incredible redistribution of income from the the middle and working and middle class of America, uh, the happy days world, uh, through to the stage where it all goes to the ultra-rich and people who used to who once be experiencing happy days are now working in three or four gig economy jobs to make ends meet. Uh, coming out of university, if they go there with a with a student debt, and wondering if they're ever going to be able to buy a house. So there's the, we really have to say, look, the focus on growth has led us into a a dilemma that humanity has never experienced before. Right, but I mean, that's and, but is that a yeah. separate issue though? I mean, if, if I mean, no, those, those no, it's well and truly tied up. Well, those people who are struggling to get by are not consuming a great deal. Are they actually part of the way society is going to have to be? And we just have to tackle the consumption patterns it, at the it, top. Yeah. Because obviously, it's, and, 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 yeah. and, and part of that, the, the top, of course, and when we all know there's no such thing as drip down. It's just asset accumulation at the top. Uh, so, uh, and, and that asset accumulation is, is 
is but it is also you know as, as well as sort of like going into financial instruments which perhaps aren't having much impact on the economy they are also being invested into companies which are which are driving growth but we do need innovation don't we and that money's got to come from somewhere well, the money, the money is not the problem. The creation of money is is, is, is not difficult. It, it's the usage of resources uh, that we have to focus upon. And I think, frankly, uh, because we have had this mythical belief the market system will solve the problem and, and uh, you know, if you get a decent social cost of carbon, we'll decarbonize because of that alone and continue growing. Uh, and then the load we're putting on the economy is growing at an, an exponential rate. So... Uh, if we were going to maintain uh, you know, the rate of growth that America was managing uh, in the Keynesian days, that would mean a factor of 10 increase in our load on the planet every century. Mm. So 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times the load in four centuries. That is a recipe for unsustainability, and we simply have to wake up to it. And unfortunately, because the economic theory pulled the walls over its eyes and over our eyes, made us not focus on distribution of income when that was the most important uh, trend for the last 40 or 50 years and doesn't have any concept of the ecological pressure we're putting on the planet and doesn't understand exponential growth at all. Um, we're going to go, we're, we're, the wall is arriving soon, put it that way. Right. So and this in, in that, yeah, we'll be forced into, into, I think we're going to be forced into rationing and controls on consumption well, and population so, too. So, so carbon credits, let's talk about that in just a second. But just this, this idea of, you know, the fact that even if you had rising GDP, so aside from climate change, this is something else that, you know, governments have uh, been remiss to monitor, track and develop policy around. The fact that you can have rising GDP, but it doesn't necessarily mean we are better off because that growth isn't equitable and that, you know, exactly what you're talking about. And that that, that is a failing of, of governments around the world, isn't it? Because... You want everyone to play a part in the uh, in the development of an economy, and you want everyone to be a, a beneficiary from it. And if you're seeing GDP rising, but the consumption and lifestyles of a huge tract of that population isn't keeping pace with it, that is an enormous policy failure that we've been seeing over the last decade or so. Oh yeah, well and truly, and uh, and I think there's going to be an enormous amount of anger when people realise just how serious this uh, this policy uh, failure is. And that's what that's what troubles me. That um, you know, the, the, we've been told for a long, long time, don't worry about uh, uh, population growth, don't worry about uh, uh, income distribution. Let's just grow the pie for everybody. But we're growing the pie at the expense of the planet, and the planet doesn't really care whether we exist on it or not. So the great danger is what's going to happen when the uh, uh, when when the planet itself uh, throws back at us, uh, so, the, the, the impact of the changes we're putting onto the biosphere, and that is happening right now. So there is a solution, isn't there? And we've talked about this in the past, and others have, have talked about it. The question is, how realistic is it in implementing it? But this idea of a carbon credit currency, if you like, so to live alongside our regular currency. So if you buy anything, you are charged for the carbon impact. And everybody at the beginning of the year or whenever gets the same amount of these carbon credits uh, and uh, if you are investing for growth, then you you know you, you're going to need your carbon credits or whatever you're producing. You've got to show that you're not going to uh, you're not going to use up more carbon than you've got the credits for. And basically, we, then we do have a you know a, almost like a parallel economy working alongside the the monetary economy. 
I mean, there's lots of reasons why that would work, and it would actually also solve this problem about uh, you know the uh, difference in incomes because rich people would run out of their carbon tokens faster. They'd have to trade on them and buy them off poorer people. And obviously, that would push the price of those carbon items up, and it would help equalize income. So there's a, that's a, a benefit as well. It seems like a fantastic idea. Can you see it ever getting off the ground? Uh, no, I can't, unfortunately. Uh, because Why not? Political opposition. The the whole idea that I mean, the whole the, this is something which I dreamt up on my own, and then found that uh, Alan, uh, Alan Hardy. Adam Hardy, pardon me, had already come up with the idea himself and has established a website called ecocore.org where he's been pushing for this concept of a parallel currency based on carbon credits where everybody in a country would get the average for that country as a carbon credit and then they were tradable and uh, whenever you bought something you'd be paying both the money price and the carbon price. The, the Really the top only the top 5% would find themselves exhausting their carbon credits on a daily basis and therefore having to buy carbon credits off the, off the other 95% to, um, uh, to be able to continue their lifestyles. Uh, and that would be enormous pressure for reduction in carbon consumption. But there's no way that's going to be agreed to before we start seeing catastrophic damages. And then when we do start doing them, and they are catastrophic, are we going to react? Are we going to do anything about it? I am extremely sceptical uh, that that will be, be done. It, if it comes in, it'll come in the same way that rationing came in in World War II. Yeah. And that's the only only when people realize that it's literally that serious. So we're likely to see any real um, uh, potential to adopt a scheme like this. But it I is guess quite, it is. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it is quite revolutionary, isn't it? And, and look, I could see it happening in places like the UK and maybe Europe as well. Not a cat in hell's chance in uh, in the United States, though, is there? Because uh, it, it's going to compromise your lifestyle. Well, this is, I mean, the, the, again, the extent to which I mean, it, 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 you know, all of us benefit to some extent from the energy consumption levels that we're uh, we're seeing at the moment. So, um, the idea of abandoning that lifestyle is again, it's that Leonard Cohen line: we're locked into our suffering and our pleasures are the seal. Mm. If you wanted to eliminate the dangers, then you're going to have to uh, equally eliminate. Um, the comfort with which you survive. Now, it, it, the question is: At what level in income can uh, in, income within a country do you reach the point where you are uh, potentially balancing the damage we're doing to the biosphere, or uh, make, making it something which is we can make sustainable in the long term, medium to long term? And that could be, you know, you, you were talking about people living in the gig economy and the, and the amount of energy they consume. If you're getting around everywhere on a bicycle, even even an electric bicycle, if you're living in a small apartment, you're sharing it with other people, maybe your energy consumption is such that if the entire population had that level, then you would be able to focus upon reducing the damage to the biosphere as the, as the most important uh, economic and political objective. Um, uh, but I, I simply can't see that happening in a peaceful fashion. Yeah. And, and then you've and, got, you've got the, BRICS, scary. the BRICS nations who, you know, I believe aren't big on climate change mitigation and they are basically half the world's consumption now. They, they use 35% of uh, the world's oil, 36% of natural gas, 72% of coal, and they've got 42% of oil reserves, 50% of gas reserves, 40% of coal reserves. 
I mean, if if they want to grow using fossil fuels and the rest of the world is trying to contain consumption, then they've got a bit of a substantial leg up and the planet's stuffed, basically. Yeah, well, there's going to be conflict. I mean, again, national conflict is going to be the, the rule as, as well uh, because it's, I mean, having lived in Thailand for some time and seeing, um, you know, there's certainly poverty in the in the suburb in which I'm building a house in in uh, in Bangkok, but it's it, it, the standard of the, the living standard overall is bearable. Nobody is, you know, you don't see beggars in the street like you see them in London, frankly. Um, so it is, it is feasible to imagine uh, that you could reduce everybody's global income. To the standard that is, you know, the middle, low to middle class in Thailand, and actually be living a moderately comfortable lifestyle. But then again, it's the structure of the economy. Does that support it? So, like in, in again, in the thinking of my uh, in Lakrabang in Bangkok, uh, walking distance to the marketplace, bicycles and and, and motorbikes to get around. Um, uh, you've got to have air conditioning to survive. That's a major. That's a major issue. Um, but overall, it's 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 still a moderately comfortable lifestyle for most people. But it'd be a huge step down for for um, um, you know the 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 uber wealthy, and and that's where the resistance is going to come from. And I think actually also political resistance from the middle class uh, and the in, in America in particular. Right, but if the middle class start shrinking uh, and they see that the uber wealthy are getting wealthier, then maybe uh, you know maybe they'll come to that conclusion faster. But just the the idea that you've got zero growth, zero GDP growth, what does that do for innovation? What does that do for companies that say, well, okay, we've got a great idea and we want to invest, but all of a sudden it's not making any sense because if we've got zero growth, how do we have profit? Well, you can have your profit. Profit is a flow and it's possible to be making a profit while, while, while not growing. Um, property ultimately it's like saying you know, can you, can you have wages at all if you have zero growth yes okay you can uh, it's just saying how do you generate an income but is that income compatible with the sustainable use of resources in the planet at the moment the answer is no but the no is coming from the the ones who are getting profit in their pockets rather than wages and that would means a dramatic leveling out in the distribution of income uh, from what we've allowed to happen in the last 40 or 50 years. But companies, uh, I mean, every company overestimates how successful their enterprise is going to be. And obviously that has to be the case. You know, if you add up the, you know, what companies expect is going to be their market share for whatever it is they produce in whatever sector, then you're going to get somewhere well north of 100% if you add, add them all together. And that's necessary, isn't it? Because everyone's bullish about, you know, how, how successful they're going to be. If uh, if they don't see, and that's you know helps the economy grow because there's overinvestment uh, that happens as a, as a result of that, and that helps ultimately keep prices down, I guess. But if, that, if that's that's yeah, that, that's that, that's that's the one of the part one part of the nature of capitalism, and like that's that's been the, the a major source of the of the growth in in living standards in this yeah. last. Um, um, uh, God knows, uh, last well, one and a half, two centuries. But wouldn't we be cutting uh, yeah. that off? Wouldn't we be cutting yeah. that thinking off if we did this? And, and we therefore, would. We we, would. You, a lot of great innovative ideas that actually might help us to improve our living standards while not using so much energy might be cut off because companies would just go, well, look, you know, uh, we've done the sums. The amount of money we're going to get is it's just not worth the investment. That 
Well, let's not forget this. Companies aren't the only potential source of innovation. And when you're talking about a crisis like we're expecting uh, from the from the climate, that's when it's a case of throwing the resources at the state to create the uh, the resources to enable people to innovate uh, in a collective sense with the fear that if they don't innovate, then it's, uh, you know, good night, Josephine, uh, for your civilization. So for a while, we're going to have to uh, abandon the, the focus upon consumer uh, uh, you know, consumption and corporate innovation driven by the profit motive and say we, we need innovation to drastically reduce our uh, load of energy consumption, to push us away from fossil fuel-based systems towards non-fossil fuel, to start uh, finally recognising we cannot continue damaging the biosphere in the way we are with the, all the chemicals and pollutants we're throwing in to the system. With all that, um, and the, the innovation we saw in the World, World War II was huge. Um, and it was, you know, corporations were doing it, but um, with funding coming from the government and with an objective coming from the government system. So uh, what I'm bracing myself for is all the bloody uh, conspiracy theorists who think this has all been a plan <laughs> and the nonsense will get out of that. Well, it's very easy no for them plan. to join the dots, this is isn't no it? Plan. I mean, these are the people who are saying, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. the whole the whole point of climate change has been dreamt up to enable this world government where all resources would be controlled by... Uh, a few meddling politicians, and it would cut out the uh, the opportunity for innovation coming from the from the private sector. I, I don't agree with them, but you can see how they could easily join the dots to come yeah. up with that argument. Oh yeah, I mean, I cop enough of them on Twitter occasionally, and I'm getting more and more short, thin-skinned about the sort of nonsense they throw my way because I've dealt with these people, and they're not. They're, you know, I know some of the conspiracy theorists. There's a couple in my family, uh, but but also I've dealt with people in the policy level, and they, the ones making these decisions fundamentally are as deluded as the conspiracy theorists themselves. They have no bloody idea what's going on. They swallow the nonsense of mainstream economists, like that guy Stuart Kirk, who uh, came out and said that uh, you know climate change doesn't matter, ESG is unimportant because uh, you know all the damage is going to make climate change are going to make us five percent. Uh, less rich than we're going to be uh, in a hundred years' time. When we'll be when we'll be five times richer, you won't even notice. I'm sorry, Stuart. Uh, you're you've followed the nonsense of mainstream economists, and you're as deluded as any conspiracy theorist. So uh, we talked last week about Keynes and uh, how you know what um, close to a hundred years ago he was talking about we'd only be working fifteen hours uh, a week, uh, which you know would would be a beautiful thing, of course. The problem with that is if you can earn fifty, if you can work for just fifteen hours a week, then you're going to work for forty and and three times as much, which is what we talked about last week. But I mean, he said oh. he hoped we'd gravitate more to culture and society and less consumerism, and that would be a good step forward, wouldn't it? And actually, you know, if you were to say to me, would you be happy with your lifestyle as it is now, or perhaps slightly worse, but you got more time, uh, and you know, you can occasionally go out for a coffee. Uh, you can spend more time reading. You don't need to, you know, the things that I want to do don't consume a great deal of energy. And I'd be happy just to, you know, continue living like that. Sounds like a good life to me. Although, it's, having, it's, said, it's, having said it's, that, I do want to go to Australia yeah. every so often. <laughs> that blows <laughs> that whole argument out of the water. <laughs> 
Well, see, this this is when you talk about decoupling, uh, then it's things like no more international trips, yeah. uh, no more shipping of uh, of goods from China to Europe anymore. If you're going to make them, you make them locally, and you just you distribute them, uh, you know, using the rail system rather than using trucks. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that means an incredible redesign of our economy. And while that redesign is going on, the amount of energy that would be available for consumption comes down drastically. So uh, to, to me, I, I'm just expecting us to be forced into wartime style, style rationing at some at some point. And if, if you look back and look at the, the psychological um, profiles of people during the war, funnily enough, the level of heart, heart disease, stress, cholesterol levels actually decline, not because so much of a fall in, in, in um, diet that that did occur, but also that the realization that the, 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 there's the uncertainty was gone because the certainty was we either fight the Germans or we, or we, or we uh, get dominated by, by Nazis. And that gave a sense of purpose, which partly compensated uh, for the drastic fall in living standards. Mm. And, and the thing is, we are going to face a drastic fall in living standards. I think there's absolutely no choice about it. Uh, yeah. It's a question of how, how that impacts upon the cohesiveness of our society. Well, you know, I, as a, a small example, I would love it if more people were getting about on push bikes because I love cycling around and would always happily do that. And, you know, happy to take my wife into, into town if we want to go and grab a coffee, but she'd never do it on a bike because she's worried about getting hit by cars. If there were less cars around then she'd be on a bike as well and so would everyone else uh so less energy better lifestyle we're all less obese and uh, you know happy days ooh la la come by uh but uh, <laughs> how we get there so i mean it's and, and, and it seems like you know we, we touched on it because we don't know the answer we don't, haven't got a you know an answer about how we transition except we have said a couple of uh, of important statistics which i feel like everyone should be tracking every government should be tracking and comparing ourselves with one is gdp uh, and and, you know, and how the income distribution maps to that GDP. And then more importantly, as we said, you know, the GDP growth related to growth in energy consumption uh, to show that the, the, the decoupling is not happening. And so we understand that we can't have that energy. We can't have that GDP growth if it comes at the expense of, of using more energy. We're not even tracking that, really. Governments don't even talk about it. Maybe if, if they started talking about it uh, and we started comparing each uh, on that basis, then at least we are starting to highlight what the issue is, even if we don't have a solution. Yeah, and, and that's it's, it's largely getting away from this energy blindness. And that's like one of the terms that uh, Nat Hagens has popularized. I think it's extremely realistic. Mm. The, the lack of awareness that we have about the role of energy. And that's partly why we're in this trap, because neoclassical bloody economists, uh, in particular William Nordhaus, have no idea of the role of energy in production and therefore don't have did not realize and don't realize uh, that the increase in wealth we've had has come largely from using more energy and that the amount we're using uh, is is unsustainable for the biosphere of the planet. So if we, if we have that awareness uh, and we can see you know, where our problems have come from, there's some chance of avoiding uh, the worst of the catastrophe that could come our way. Uh, but we're going to be trying to do this while the biosphere is taking its revenge on us as a species and you know it's if, if in terms of who's got the power it's the nature it's nature not not uh, not our civilization as we're uh, observing with the with the chaos in uh in the, the the heat domes and the and the uh the, what the omega trapping i think they call it in the climate in in europe um uh, we are going to have to do this 
while the physical capacity of the planet of us to get resources out of the planet without damaging the planet damaging us back with violent climate change uh, well that's gone so it's it's going to be the biggest struggle in the history of humanity and it's about time we woke up to it right well uh, we'll leave it there for now it is interesting though isn't it that we are close to zero gdp growth right now i wonder if it's going to bounce back that quickly um well, I'm, I'm, what I expect to see, unfortunately, is more fossil fuel usage. When we, if we have an incredibly you know, hot summer uh, again in Europe, Europe is actually parts of Europe suffered very badly, but of course the UK um, managed to avoid it this time round. But if you start seeing dramatic increase in energy consumption to to try to avoid you know, um, wet bulb. Uh, catastrophes in various parts of the planet, we're likely to use more energy and more fossil fuels uh, to try to sustain us. Again, that classic line, we are trapped into our sufferings and our pleasures are the seal. Yeah, well, that's the argument my brother always gives, that we're going to need fossil fuels to mitigate the impacts of climate change. But there, he's bound to say that because he works for BP. Uh, we'll, leave it, <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you next time. Okay, mate. Bye. You know what? The one thing we didn't talk about, well, Steve touched on it briefly, is just the increasing population. So overall, we've got, what, 8.1 billion people on the planet right now. The UN estimates there's going to be 9.7 billion by 2050. So if we want to see no growth in consumption overall, then individually we'd actually all need to reduce consumption by about 20%. That is the size of it. Uh, maybe population is a, another discussion on the, on the podcast for, for future weeks. That's it for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen again next week. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 